You know, sometimes you get tired. The daytime part's hard. The night's more fun with the shows. But uh, life's not just the shows. You know, you got to wake up in the day and make sure the guest list is right, the payment, the lighting, and the sound, and the smoke machine, you know, whatever you're doing. It's a, what gag might you do or might not? You know, it's just, then the pipe bursts, and then the bathroom toilet bursts. You know, there's just a lot of issues to manage. But um, when it's all flowing right, that's when you can really feel it. It's awesome. That's awesome. That's why I do what I do. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Peter Shapiro is a legend in the live music business. Named to the 2022 Billboard Power List, he is one of the biggest independent concert promoters in the industry. But unlike many promoters, he is also a venue owner as he operates the Brooklyn Bowl music venues and the Capitol Theater. But Peter is perhaps best known for getting the core members of the Grateful Dead back to play together. See, the dead has always been in his life. His experience creating a documentary around them in 93 led him to work and then own The Wetlands, the iconic New York music venue of a certain generation. Wetlands led him to open Brooklyn Bowl. It all led him back to being able to bring the Grateful Dead back together in some of the most anticipated concerts ever in Chicago several years ago. Fare thee well, celebrating 50 years of the Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead's 50th anniversary final show. Today, he is still doing what he loves, putting on concerts, running venues, and he is also out with a new book. It's called The Music Never Stops, what putting on 10,000 shows has taught me about life, liberty, and the pursuit of magic. My first question I had to ask, though, was where did you grow up and how did music become such an important part of your life? That's funny. No, <laughs> I grew up in New York City. And, you know, I was more into sports and video. Like in high school, I was like, I had my own public access TV show in high school here in New York, Channel 35. It's not so the Robin Byrne show. Yes, but I was about to say I was next to Robin Byrne in terms of same channel. <laughs> um, but I was did it about my high school's high school sports. And uh, I went to Bill Rafferty Broadcasting Camp, dude. But I was an intern at Video Music Box, WNYC, where I'm actually now on the board, ironically. One of, that was the first hip-hop music video show. This is like 1990. And, uh, but I got the bug. End of high school, I started going to concerts like senior year, like Jane's Addiction, Lollapalooza. But it wasn't really until college I went to Northwestern for film, for video. I love that stuff. And uh, in 1993, I went to a Grateful Dead show in March of 93 in Rosemont Horizon in Chicago on a snowy night and saw the Grateful Dead. And, and it's like, sounds trite, but it changed my life, it really did. You know, I had one of these sliding doors moments where you get to the train and if you get on the train, you go, your life takes one direction. And if you don't make this train, some things happen and your life is different. And I got on the Grateful Dead train, I, I went to this show, I'd been once before at Giant Stadium, but I wasn't into the dead, I wasn't even a huge music guy. But I, I go, my head's, you know, spinning for the first time. And they bring out a spoken word artist. And he, Ken Nordine, 
Hey, Robert, Enterprise, you know, Entrepreneur Magazine is talking to, and it was like, wow, in the arena. I left the show, I swear. And I don't know, I didn't have a cell phone. I don't know how I found my friends. I ended up in the parking lot outside Rosemont Horizon, and they had all these drum circles, right? And the school buses and these kids who were my age, 21, but they were not going back to Northwestern. They were not going home. They were on the road. And by the way, this doesn't exist today. The dead's gone. And even aside Dead & Co. or Fish, there, there's no traveling circus like there was. And so I went, to, I went back to university. And for the only time in my music life, we talk about doors. And at doors, you have people line up early so they can run out on a GA show and be first on the rail and stage. You're at doors. I was the first time ever I was at doors in the library the next day, 9 a.m researching what had been done. What the hell was this Grateful Dead world I just saw? I swear. And I was a film, I was in a video. I got another kid who was a film student who had like a big, this is 1993. So video cameras were new, home video, but they were big. It was not on this little phone. It was like this big, but we, I, Phil Brule had a camera. We rented a van, all white. I learned a quick lesson. I went on dead tour with this video camera, all white van, Ford Econoline, 350, no windows. We pull into uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan, Detroit, first day of the tour to make a documentary about Grateful Dead Tour. And I learned very quickly, Robert, that if you're going to go on Dead Tour and make a documentary, it's probably best not to show up in the parking lot in a white van with no window. Because <laughs> everyone's like, do you hear this kid? And I'm like, Phil, keep driving, keep driving. So we like drove down the road, parked, and we walked back. And uh, you can see that thing if any, uh, anyone wants to on YouTube. It's called it Miles to Go. Pete Shapiro, I put it together on tour with the Grateful Dead. And that's funny, that film, I couldn't get the band to be in it. But I went on tour interviewing all the people on tour. And the owner of a great rock club in New York called Wetlands saw it. And I got King Keezy and Timothy Leary and all the people around the dead world, but not the dead. He saw it in the way that my life started and how I'm here today, really, my music life is this owner of this great rock club, Wetlands, saw it and was like, you get that, you get it. And uh, I'm going to retire. I can't run this rock club anymore. Running these rock clubs is hard. Yeah. And so he said, I'm going to give it to you. You know, the next generation. Two things. First, tell me, what was it just, and I remember too, because as my brother growing up, followed the dead around, I was never, but I went to a concert Funny enough, Giant Stadium 93 as well. Could've oh, my a- first was Giant Stadium 92. Summer. <laughs> and seeing the whole, first, I love the music, but seeing the whole atmosphere, like you said, Carnival, it was just incredible. And what was it, though, on that snowy night and then going back to Northwestern, what was it that you felt that you knew this was a life changer? It's a good question. Um, the people were seeking something that they're not getting at home. Are they looking for magic a little bit or just looking for that connection and just that feeling, that spirit? And it was a little bit searching for the 60, you know, what it was like. These kids missed out on Summer Love. What's wild, it was 93. If you take Summer Love 67, a, uh, that's 26 years, 93 after 67, right? And now that was 93. We're more than further apart. Isn't that cool? Um, And that's what it was. These kids, they read about it in the textbook, right? We were growing up in the 90s. 
about the 60s and we missed out on it. I think they're just like, that was the closest you could get in America in 1993 to feeling you were in Haight-Ashbury in 67, yes. was on Dead Tour. And by the way, it was pretty fun, compelling. I'm sure people are partying, doing whatever, but but there's no question they were looking for something that they weren't just getting in their suburban home or their university. Or And I went to try and capture that. So I went out with this camera. I went to a bunch of different Buffalo and D.C. and Deer Creek, Indiana and Michigan on Dead Tour. I, I didn't go inside ever. My documentary is nothing going on in the show. And and by the way, we're talking Entrepreneur Magazine here. It's like it was a great first thing for me. I got school credit. I always tell kids who work for interns, try and do whatever you can during college. You want to talk about being an entrepreneur because it's a, you have free try. It's like it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out, really. Uh, obviously you wanted to, but like I meet kids who come and say, I'm going to quit college. You know, I'm going to be in a band and I'm just focusing on that or I'm just focusing on. And I'm like, no, no, like stay in college and then try to do some entrepreneurial stuff while you're in school. And actually, when I graduated college, I moved into my house, my parents back in to give me more opportunity to do the internship type stuff, which the reality is that's little or no pay, but you need, but it's really valuable in the lessons of life and the resume and connections and relationships and references. So you can have two paths, right? You can be some kids are like, I want to live on my own. I don't care. I'll have to go work as a bartender. Some people are like, you know what? I'm going to suck it up and live at home in my old bedroom. But that, I don't have to pay rent. I can grab shit out of the refrigerator. I can be an intern and get paid nothing and work as an intern at X. Who could? So that's only a decision that you know each individual can make for themselves. But I went and lived at home and continued the internships. I was at New Line Cinema. I did things in graduating college. And then I taken over Wetlands. One of the things that worked for me, I was so young that I didn't have family. I was a good club owner because I could be up late. When the bands finished and the wetlands, they finished late, that kind of Grateful Dead jam world. Disco Biscuits didn't finish at midnight. It was 2.15, but I was there at the end. And I was there with the trade tequila shots. I still try to do that. You can hear it in my voice. I've been doing that for 27 <laughs> It's a lot that tougher voice, these days, right? <laughs> yeah, I got to actually having, speaking of being a rock and roll entrepreneur, it's helpful to be married, to have kids. Kids particularly will get, you know, taking your kid to school. And the kid's five, you know, you'll go home. You know, you don't want to miss that. So, um, or, and you'll be tired when you wake up. So I did a lot of that. And uh, yeah. And you just figure it out, right? Tell, tell me and tell our audience about Wetlands because Wetlands is an iconic venue in New York City, or was. And really, just in terms of what that meant to music and what really, more importantly, the question what it meant to you to be involved at that point and be asked to be involved with that venue. Yeah, I mean, we'll start off with this. The irony is Larry Block, you know, but he's upstairs, who started it, a couple fun things. He started it not to be, a. I mean, it's got, had now Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, Dave Matthews Band, you know, a lot of major, major bands started there. But it was not built to be a live music venue. It was like a bar gathering place, communal central thing. It's a pre-internet place. Opens in 1989. It's a place for like-minded deadheads. It's really a home for deadheads and environmental types to like meet and have a drink and have meetings for like Amnesty International to meet and organize or Rainforest Action. Where in 1989 is Rainforest Action? There was no meetup.org. There are no 
chat boards and messaging and let's go meet on 50th and third and have a protest. And that didn't exist. You had to do it in a real, it was analog. So the idea was where do you have those meetings? You know, are we going to do it, you know, at the school, in the park, at the library, at the rock club before the show. It's really a fundamental kind of the underlying idea of wetlands was to use the venue before the show to offer space for groups to meet. And then at the show on the walls, if you remember, there'd be like pamphlets and things you could sign up for, petitions at the venue about a variety of issues related to environmental and social justice. So I agreed when he came to me, Larry Block, and said, I saw your dead film. You get it. You get why people need this spirit, this music to feed them. And, and, I, and I, so I built this venue and he, he had spent a hundred grand a year on this environmental center. He had three part-time or employees who would organize these groups. And so part of the deal is I agreed to continue that fund it. And in exchange, since I was 23 years old, he gave it to uh, most of the other people looking to buy it. Bigger companies, Ron Delsner, John Shear, he they'd be like, okay, so let's, this is famous. Everyone was interested. Let's look at the books. And he'd be like, there are no books. <laughs> I'm not showing you the books. You have to, you want wetlands or not. I'm going to give you too cheap. And I was so young and naive. I was moronically genius because I said, okay, no books. Okay. And I told my dad, well, there's no books. It's like a new business. A new business does not have books. It has projections. I'm going to write projections. And Larry's like, I'll tell you what the garbage removal costs a month. I'll tell you what the water bills a month. I'll tell you what the insurance is, but I'm not giving you, because everything was, you know, scratched and cat, you know, who knows, you didn't want. So I was just like, no problem. Just tell me what you know, and I'll run my own new numbers. And that, everyone else said, go fuck yourself. Excuse my French. By the way, today, now I'm 50, I was 23. If someone to a business I tried to buy today was like, no books. (laughs) No, but I'd say, what are you talking about? Get the fuck out, you know. (laughs) So, uh, so that, and the other irony is um, he placed it right at the edge, the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. And he's like, no one will ever want to live here. Because when you exit the Holland Tunnel, the first thing you saw was wetland. Cars, traffic, smoke, exhaust. He's like, it was brilliant. No one ever want to live there. The club will last forever. And the irony is now today, if we went down to Wetland, Hudson, Lake, and Tribeca, the apartments are fucking 10 million bucks. They're so nice. I'm just thinking yeah. about that area down there. And it also is pretty genius because of the marketing when that's the first thing you're seeing coming out of the Holland Tunnel with all that traffic. But tell me about you and going back to that time and taking this risk, this chance, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. What was that like, that feeling? And were there challenges and a time you were like, hey, maybe, maybe I I can't do this? Yes, still feel that. I still get butterflies in my stomach, you know, about running this business on my own and uh, walking up to shows to the venue. Last night, I went to a show at Brooklyn Bowl, which is 14 years old. And I do it all. And I still get butterflies. Once I'm in the venue, they go away. Interesting. You know, because I'm comfortable. Yeah. But still, especially big sold out shows, because all the details matter. Yeah. For a show to be successful, all the details matter. And if all the details matter, it's hard. All the, you got to make sure everything's right. Putting on a show successfully is um, something that you just got to get everything right. So it takes the effort. You can't just assign it to somebody else. Yeah. You know, if you want everything really to be right and how you do it and, and you deal with the guests and are the people in the right place and 
the timing and when is this guest musician is going to sit in, show up and make sure everyone's communicating. So we do a lot of that. You know, you got to make sure all the details are right, you know, which is not easy. And I learned that at Wetlands. And the other thing is I've just been doing it a lot, long time. You know, the whole Malcolm Gladwell thing I think is real, which is the 10,000 hour rule. My thing happens to be, um, I've done 10,000 shows. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been to every single one of my shows, but I've been responsible. Like if something went wrong, I get the phone call. I still, I, a lot of my phone calls are things dealing with things going wrong. Yeah. Isn't it amazing but, uh, though? Like you're talking about it. It's so it's, I hate to say it, but great to hear it. Cause I'm always been an entrepreneur as well on, on a third business. And it's still like, even before we were just sitting down taping, we're going over something we're doing this weekend with this, it's a podcasting company and, and I'm still those butterflies and that anxiousness. And even after having success and things going well, it's just, it's so incredible that like, I thought I'd get to this age, which I'm about the same age as you. And it would just be like, nah, you know what? There wouldn't be that anxiety or that worry, but it just seems like it doesn't, doesn't go away. Yeah. No, I think the people who really want to do it well, whatever you're doing, me putting on a show, whether you're writing or doing a podcast or what you do, you want to do it well, you, you know, you want to, so you get that feeling. That's me just be human nature. I know I still feel like I have another big show tonight and I'm sitting here talking to you, but also in the middle of it, I'm thinking about ideas related to the show. And now I've got venues in Vegas and Nashville and Philly. So I, I got a lot going on in my head. Um, yeah. Someone once said, uh, uh, Eric Krasnow is a great friend and musician that, you know, you've got your Netflix is in your brain. <laughs> I like this. So, you know, I like why I like one day I'll sit and just watch lots of TV, but right now sometimes, you know, I don't have time to really think, you know, and be creative because during the day you're doing the blocking and tackling, dealing with the issues that come in, fixing things and HR is more complicated than ever. Again, the details, once the details matter, it takes a lot of time. Let's talk about Brooklyn Bowl and going from wetlands and Brooklyn Bowl, the idea for it, again, way ahead of its time, just even in, in terms of location. Talk to me a little bit about that, the challenges there, and how it's become what it's become today. Well, you know, wetlands is this great rock club, but like wasn't built to be a rock club. So like the sight lines, when it was sold out, 30% of the people couldn't see the show. So they would go to the bar and the basement, which would be great because then they'd meet friends. I had people say, I met my wife at Wetlands because you were at the bar in the basement. But you could hear it, but you couldn't see the show. And like a perfect venue in Irving Plaza, Bowery Ballroom, great sidelines. You don't meet your wife. I mean, great place to watch a show, but you don't wander around as much. You just stand there and watch the show. So when we built Brooklyn Bowl, we wanted a combination. You wanted the great sidelines, but you also want to keep that village atmosphere. It take, you know, which different parts of the venue are like part of the village, part of the town. And offer people different areas to like congregate meet. So that was the Broken Bowl idea. It comes from a little bit of New Orleans, rock and roll, late night, New Orleans. The place is really built to be after Jazz Fest in New Orleans, two in the morning. So we do a lot of that in New Orleans bands, a lot of lights spinning around, a lot of disco ball, not a lot of windows, um, a live music vortex, you know, a lot of eye candy. We use those screens. We love the bowling. Charlie and I, my partner, of that, the, and I was a film guy. We talked about that earlier. So the dimensions that the bowling alley name gives you where your eye is like 150 feet from those screens above the pins. And then that's a hundred feet plus mm. wide. 
you know, at our, you go to a traditional music venue, you don't have that. Yeah. Where then we can show the show running live. It's called the iMag, the image magnification of like the close up of a guitar playing. You know, when you can do that, hundred, you know, on eight different mega screen, you know, and give it that Epcot Center for adults in New Orleans on a buzz. That's a win. That that works. That's what we found out at Brooklyn Bowl. Plus, then you're in your little VI. The lanes become a VIP area. We have the blue ribbon food. You're in the best spot to watch the show. You got the screens. Like we just thought it'd be fun. But what we didn't realize is it would almost become a better widget in a way versus just a standalone traditional venue without any of those extras. Yeah. Um, plus, the band likes to come and after sound check, they can bowl or hang out with their girlfriend. She can bowl with her kids or her cousin or her sister while the band's on stage or the boyfriend of the lead singer can be eating our fried chicken versus just usually getting a sandwich platter. Yeah. So we came up and then what's interesting is because we have multiple revenue streams, we have the bowling, we have the food, obviously you have drink, every menu's got drink and that's the best margin and you have tickets. So those are two tickets, drink, but what we have that others don't is food. Not everyone has food, so, but no one's really got bowling and bowling's a great business because like the shoe rentals, five bucks, it costs like 30 bucks to buy 35 bucks. You can pay for them in a day or two. And uh, people are on the lane, they're paying to hang out. But what we've learned is once you have six or eight people, then the customer's winning because, you know, it brings the price point down, amortized, amortized over a bunch of people. So it probably makes sense if you're going to come to the ball and come with six or eight people versus just one or two to really maximize getting your value back. And, and just that experience of being on a lane, that vortex of eye candy flying around, spinning around you is it just works and then you had a great live band and the other thing we took a chance on was a band would be like well i'm gonna play a bowling alley what about the noise of the pin so we got these special pins they're on strings no mechanical inside the pin machines no grinding you know when they pick up the pins yeah they're on strings and like we could not host a pba tournament but you can't tell the difference (laughs) and they make no noise that's amazing. Not, there's no grinding. There's no gears. Like when the ball hits the pin, it makes a noise. and come, But there's none of that lower tone grind. Yeah. Pretty cool. So yeah, we put a lot of time and thought into this when we did it. Like how do we optimize it? And tell me, like you were at, you were running the owner, wetlands, history name. This was, and correct me if I'm wrong, the first time you really went out. Not that it's any easier anything you did but you went out this was the name you came up with created this is a start a new venue were you anxious what was that feeling like well yeah a lot of people sorry yeah a lot i mean ron delzer is like the great living rock promoter came to see the construction site he's a friend i said ronnie look at this the bowling alley's here the concert stage is here the ga floor is here the lanes are here he's like wait wait come here come here yeah come here First of all, it's 20,000 square feet and there's no one there. There's zero. Right. And so we can just talk here, but he's still like coming to my corner. And he's like, <laughs> there's all I think. He goes, what the, what the hell are you, what are you doing? The goddamn bowling alley next to the goddamn stage, you moron. No one's going to play here. And so I was nervous <laughs> trying it out. But um, we found that if you turn it up and if you put the best PA system in the world, D&B, and we cannot do solo musicians. We do not try Tori Amos solo on piano. We cannot do comedy. We could not host your podcast. 
on stage. You know, no one would come we, anyway. But, so don't worry about it. <laughs> but we can do rock and roll. You know, and have a band play. No delay. It's just this. It's not even close in the end, which is kind of cool for how many people warned me that this path I was choosing would not work. That in the end, it worked so easy. It really worked. And I love that there's different parts of the ball, you know, and we're still figuring, optimizing when we're building these new one in Vegas. It's real big. It's 80,000 square feet, 2,500 cap. But we got the very rare opportunity to build our own venue, not in a casino in the middle of Vegas, standalone. For me, I'm a guy, I grab that, you know, the money and someone to fund it. Like, I don't know, you know, but you got to guarantee it with New York. So everything comes with risk and is nervous and then we went to Nashville. We decided to partner with Live Nation in a joint venture because otherwise I'd be whacking with them and just fighting, you know? So it's like maybe we just focus on the venue of being as good it can be as it can be. So, and then that's how my career has been. Some of it's on my own. Sometimes I partner with people. The Dead 50 shows I did, I partnered with AG. But one thing, it's kind of like being at the playground. Sometimes you want to go down the slide on your own. And then sometimes you want to go down the slide on the back of the biggest kid in the playground, you know, hold on. And that's live Nate, you know, so sometimes I want to go up against them, but sometimes I want them to be my dad, you know, be on my side. No, it's like, yeah, be on my side, support me. So it's been good. And, um, but a lot of it's mostly still on my own, but you know, it's just stressful. It's hard COVID, you know, and you're always raising money to do new ones. So this one made sense to kind of partner with them. I want to I want to get to your your book that just recently came out. And first, I just want to ask you and, and go through it quickly on the dead and the concept coming up with that, I thought, in terms of revolutionary and bringing them back. How did that happen? Well, I'm a fan, right? We went on night, you know, and so when you're a fan, you know, anniversaries are coming and big moments. So I was trying, I tried to get them to do something on the 40th anniversary and I didn't pull it off. So I was waiting to come back around for 15. I was doing shows with these guys. They're playing my Capitol Theater. I entered a long-term deal with Phil Lesh from the dead to exclusively play the cap. I had each of them in my different venues, Kreutzman, Lesh, Bobby, and Mickey Hart, and got to know them. I mean, you got to have the relationship. And I made a proposal. I partnered again, back to like, you know, some things I'll do Live Nation. Sometimes I'll do AEG. Those are the two dominant companies in live music. and. Uh, came up with this idea and we ended up, you know, doing three at Soldier Field and three in California, July 4th. Chicago's like July 4th, the middle of America at the last venue Jerry ever played in the Grateful Dead. His last show was in June of 95, Soldier Field. So it was like, we will return to the scene and we will finish what he started. And so they said, yes, they did. Yeah. They said, yes. And the whole Soldier Field thing, what happens? We went on sale. And you don't know how something's going to really do. Just like this bowling alley, everyone's like, this is nuts. But it worked. It wasn't even close. It worked so well. Same like going for stadiums with Trey from Fish to play with the dead. You know, that was my idea. I knew it wasn't that hard for me to realize that it would work to have Trey with Fish. And it would be one plus one is six. But sometimes the accountants, you know, they're happier after you go on sale and you sell the ticket. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we did. Luckily we sold them. Like, you know, I was in soccer practice for my kid and I got the call like the, cause Ticketmaster can measure who's in the waiting room, who's on the online queue to buy. And there was like 600,000 individual people who all want to buy tickets for every show and six tickets. So we could have sold like millions and millions and, you know, just sold oh, yeah. out 40 times. I remember people traveling from all over the world to go to those shows in Chicago and how incredible 
that was at that time. When they told you yes, what were you feeling? Ecstasy, ecstatic. I knew then this is a big moment. I knew if it went well, it would impact my life in positive ways. Every like last night, people thanking me for fairly well still. But I also knew if it did not go well, I'd be screwed for life. And you cannot change a memory. If it didn't well, I couldn't just go to them and be like, okay, everyone, let's do this again. You know, you get one shot. That's back to like details, Matt, everything. Let's meet with the TSA and the mayor and the, you know, to make sure everyone's trying to all row in the same direction. Something that big and you know it could impact you one way or the other. Was there any hesitation or, you know, that little devil on the the shoulder, like you don't want to do this or any of those feelings? It was not easy. You know, these are grown adults, you know, been together for 50 years. They love each other. They're brothers, but they're also brothers. You know what I mean? I was a little t- you know, they see the world. These are four individuals. So they, they, in terms of like, what's the tempo that, you know, Jerry Garcia would hold a lot of it together. They would go off of him for tempo, stage volume, a lot of issues that you're just like, well, figure it out. These are big issues. You know, how do you play that? We all know the song. What's the right way to play it? Someone could play it faster or slower than someone else. So that's an issue interpersonally and hard to navigate that'll make you say, I, I don't know what to do. But this is lifelong for me, dream, bucket list stuff. So I, I wasn't going to give up. Persistent. I'm not, I don't easily give up. I just saw a text before I joined with you that was from someone about something. Now I'm like, I'm going to follow up. You know, you got to do it yourself. You got it. And you know, sometimes you get tired. The daytime part's hard. The night's more fun with the shows. But uh, life's not just the shows. You know, you got to wake up in the day and make sure the guest list is right, the payment, the lighting, and the sound, and the smoke machine, you know, whatever you're doing. It's a, what gag might you do or might not? You know, it's just, then the pipe bursts, and then the bathroom toilet bursts. You know, there's just a lot of issues to manage. But uh, when it's all flowing right, that's when you can really feel it. It's awesome. That's awesome. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. Tell us about in the last time we have tell us about your book the idea for the book and what you really wanted to or what you really want people to get out of reading this so yeah i had a little health scare during covid i'm fine but the editor of relics magazine which i own was like hey you ever write anything now i'm like no nothing he's like all right you you're on the phone you can talk which i can do you know you'll just talk for a couple years all right and then we made a book. It's called The Music Never Stops. And it's organized into 50, five, zero different chapters. And each chapter is like being with Bob Dylan open the Capitol Theater or with Robert Plant here at Locke. And so I just decided to do it before I forgot it all. I don't really get how people wait till they're 83 or something, 82, because I barely remember it now. And uh, But so Dean Bunnick helped me out, bring back some of those memories. Uh, Hachette put it out. It's been a great experience. And I'm really glad I did it. Because now if I go outside and get whacked by a school bus and get knocked over and going upstairs, I'll be like, you know what? I'm glad I got those stories down in that book. And again, it's not my life. It's the story of 50 shows, many of which I was a party to playing, you know, and I've got these venues now. I love owning a venue. You know, it's different than just promoting a show at someone else's venue. That's a promoter. A venue owner, like you said, like is a real host. So, you know, I enjoy being a house brother. So do you. You're good at it, too. I love it. And I appreciate you coming on. Inspiring, as always. Good luck tonight. Enjoy 
It's another show for you, right? Thanks, Robert. Yeah, I got one tonight, and then another tomorrow, and another on Sunday. That's awesome. what we do, brother. Good to see you. <laughs> you too. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.